0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We are continuing on in our series on the book of Genesis today, and we're going to be in Genesis 13 together. Genesis chapter 13. Well, recently I heard the story of a man named R. G. Laterno for the first time. Has anybody ever heard of this guy? Anybody? Okay, so like one or two people you've heard of him. Uh, For those of you who haven't, he has a fascinating story. Laterno was a sixth-grade dropout. Who would later become the leading manufacturer of earth moving machinery in his day? He had plants on four different continents, over 300 patents to his name, and his contributions to heavy machinery and road construction have forever changed our world. But it wasn't only his contributions to machinery that changed our world, it was also his contributions to the gospel. You see, Laterno was a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And as a young man, he felt like he needed to be doing more for God. And so he set up a meeting with his pastor one day and he's thinking to himself, okay, in order to do more for God, that must mean that I must become a pastor too or sell all my stuff, move overseas and become a missionary. But that is not the advice he received. He sat down and his pastor simply told him this, RG, God needs businessmen too. Listen, just a quick side note. There are some of you in this room who are highly successful. Uh, God has gifted you with a very unique ability to make money and to acquire wealth. And assuming that you feel this way at times, man, I really wish I could do more for God. Here's what I want to say. Doing more for God doesn't necessarily mean leaving behind all your success and wealth. Instead, I would argue in most cases like yours, maybe not all cases, but in most cases like yours, doing more for God means figuring out ways to leverage your success and wealth to fund the advancement of the gospel in our world. And that's exactly what Letourneau did. He took his pastor's advice to heart, and he decided to start a business for the primary purpose of funding God's kingdom. But it wasn't always easy. Uh, In fact, in 1927, just a couple of years before the Great Depression, He had a business deal go bad, and it put him $100,000 into debt. The equivalent of that amount of money today, $1.4 million. But because he wanted to make an impact in the world for the sake of, of God's kingdom, he just kept at it, climbed his way out of debt, started making serious money, and he and his wife eventually decided, listen to this, that they would give away 90% of all their income for the sake of the gospel and live off of only 10. Now, when I heard that story, I thought to myself, okay, what motivates that type of generosity? I mean, what convinces a person to give away 90% of all that they have and to live off of only 10%? And before you're tempted to answer that question with a lot of cash, James, okay, like if I had that kind of cash, I'd be that generous too. I don't think the answer's that easy. I think the answer runs much deeper than that because you know, like I know, there are plenty of people in our world today who make a ton of cash, but they ain't giving away 90% of it, right? A lot of them don't even give away 10% of it. And so again, the question is, what would cause a person to be generous like that? Well, based on what I see in the scriptures, I believe the answer is very, very simple. I think the only thing that motivates that type of generosity Is faith. It's faith. Last Sunday we defined faith as simply this: it's confidence that God is who he says he is, and that he'll do everything he's promised to do. So, in other words, faith is not hopeful, wishful thinking like some people believe. Uh, Hope things get better. Hope things turn around. Hope I get into that school I applied for. Hope I get the job I want, right? That's not faith. But neither is faith blind optimism. I'm just gonna believe the best in spite of not knowing what the future holds. No, instead, faith is when you and I believe that everything God says about his character is true and every promise he's made us will come to pass. And when you apply that definition of faith to generosity, what that means for all of us is this, and this is the big idea of today's message, so if you're writing notes, taking notes, you can write this down. It means that you can only give generously to others when you believe in faith God gives generously to you. You can only give generously to others when you believe in faith. God gives generously to you. If your Bibles are open to Genesis 13, we'll pick it up in verse 1 and I'll explain. Here's what the Bible says. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to stop there and talk. If you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, uh, first, I would really encourage you to go back and watch the two messages that you've missed We've been covering some really important stuff as we have moved into the second section of the book of Genesis. So I don't want you to miss out on all that. But for now, I need to catch you up really quickly on where we've been so that you have context for what we just read. All right, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, you find God coming to this pagan man named Abram with some promises. Right? He tells him, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. We know that would later become the nation of Israel, right? This nation that would carry the responsibility now of fulfilling the mandate God gave to humanity in Genesis one twenty eight: Multiply, fill the earth, rule and reign in such a way that all the world sees and knows who I am. But God also promised Abram this. Hey, buddy, whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever dishonors you, I'll curse. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was obviously a future promise. And that promise looked forward to Jesus, whom God would one day send into the world through Abram's line. But there was a catch to all this. And if you've been here, do you remember the catch? Uh, God told Abram, hey, buddy, I'm going to come through on my promises, but you need to do something for me. You need to pack up your life and go. Don't worry about where you're going just leave. Leave behind your country and your family and your citizenship. I've got a land that I'm going to give you, and you just set out, and you get to traveling, and I'll let you know when you've arrived. Now, most of us agree last Sunday, if God tapped us on the shoulder and asked us to do that, we'd probably have a hard time, wouldn't we? I mean, most of us in the room would probably probably be asking God for some details. You know, where am I going to live, and God, where am I going to work, and where are my kids going to school, and how's the weather? You know, God, just give me some more And that's what intrigues me so much about Abram. When you start comparing him to all the other people in the Bible, you discover that he knew the least about God, yet he was willing to risk the most for God. He didn't ask for a single detail. He just packed up his life and he went. And when he got there, instead of settling in and unpacking and just enjoying life, living happily ever after, we learned last Sunday that his faith was immediately tested, And it was tested first by a severe famine. I mean, think about this. The guy just traveled some 800 miles on foot with all of his family members, all of his stuff. Has no idea where he's going. And eventually he comes into this foreign land, the land of Canaan. And God says, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. Abram, this is it, buddy. This is the land that I'm going to give you. And he looks around, number one, to realize, well, God, there are people living in this land And then secondly, God there's no food here. But let's not forget, he had promises, didn't he? Promises that required God to feed him, because if God brought him to the land and let him starve to death, that would make God a liar. Yet, instead of remaining confident in the promises he had received, uh, Abram did what we often do at times. His faith failed and he forgot God. And so he took his life and he took his circumstances into his own hands and did what probably seemed natural in the moment to do. He packed up his life again, and he traveled south toward Egypt where he could find food. Now, while in Egypt, he faced a second test of faith, and the second test was the fear of death. Right? Apparently, Abram's wife Sarai was incredibly beautiful, like model-type beautiful, uh, so beautiful that he was afraid when the Egyptians found out she was his wife, they were going to kill him and keep her. But again, he had promises, promises that required God to keep him alive and keep their marriage intact because how in the world was he going to father a great nation if he was dead or their marriage was done yet instead of being confident in those promises his faith failed a second time uh in the second scenario remember this he decided he was going to help God out God, yeah, I know what you promised me, but I need to assist you with that. I don't don't know if I entirely trust you to come through, so let me put a little effort in. So he says to his wife, Sarai, babe, I have come up with what I think is a fantastic plan to keep me alive while we're here. We're just going to tell the Egyptians, you're my sister. You see, in his culture, if there was no father present, the brother assumed legal guardianship of the sister, which meant any man in Egypt that wanted to take Sarai as his wife would have to negotiate terms with Abram. And so in his mind, he's probably thinking, you know what, this lie is going to buy us the necessary time to get food and get out of here before anything happens to us. But the problem was the plan to help God out backfired. And just FYI, your plan to help God out will always backfire. So stop trying to help God out. All right, He doesn't need you to help him in order to fulfill his promises. But the plan backfires. Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, hears about Sarai's beauty, and he takes her into his home, makes her one of his wives. No negotiating, just sees what he wants, and he takes her. And in return for her, he gives Abram all of this earthly stuff, which is why we just read in our text a moment ago that Abram was very rich at this point in his life. All these riches came from Pharaoh himself. Yet in the end, God intervened, And he sent plagues onto Pharaoh's house, some kind of infection, some kind of disease, and he delivered Abram and Sarai in in spite of their lack of faith. Why did he do that? Because he had a promise to keep, and they were not going to stand in his way. And so as a result of these plagues, Pharaoh finds out about their deception, and he kicks them out of his country. And that's where we find ourselves in the story today. In the verses that we read a moment ago, what we see is Abram. He's on the road yet again. He's got his tail tucked between his legs you know and he's been booted out he's traveling out of Egypt at this point and he's basically retracing his journey all the way back to the land of promise the land of Canaan and when he gets there this is so incredible to me when he gets there the very first thing that he does is he goes back to an altar he had built when he first came into the land you can find that story in Genesis 12 verses 7 and 8 and he goes back to that altar to worship, or as the text says, to call upon the name of the Lord. And what we learn from Abram's Abram's return is simply this, and this is such great news for every single person in the room. We learn that every failure can experience a fresh start. Come on, that's good news, isn't it? That every failure can experience a fresh start. Maybe it's not good news to you because you're a lot holier than me, but I'll confess and tell you there have been plenty of points over the course of my life where I have felt like a complete failure. And I love knowing from stories like these that even when my faith fails, and I hope you take confidence in this too, that even when your faith fails and you place more confidence in you than you do in God and you make all these same mistakes that Abram made, you either forget about God entirely or you start trying to help him with things he doesn't need your help with, I love knowing that doesn't have to be the end of our faith stories. right? No failure is permanent when it comes to faith. And look, that's true regardless of how long your faith has been failing. It doesn't matter if your faith has failed for a couple of days or a couple of decades. Right? God in His grace invites you to return to that place where you left Him behind and to experience a fresh start. And that's what our guy Abram did, right? I mean, I can just picture it. He goes back to this altar he had built and he's remembering the journey and he just goes and kind of hits his knees and he confesses to God, okay, God, I messed up royally my faith failed miserably. I forgot about you. I tried to help you with things I had no business helping you with. But God, you know what? I'm not going to spend the rest of my life beating myself up for it. And I'm not going to live under guilt. And I'm not going to live under shame. God, I am here confessing it. God, yes, I went off course, but now I'm back. And I'm going to put all that behind me. God, I need a fresh start. And we know from the scriptures that's exactly what Abram received from the Lord. What we see in the next uh, next in the text proves it. Look at verse five. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, that's Eden, and like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. And in parentheses, we find this really interesting statement. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to talk more about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah later in the series. But what this little note in the text tells us is that after God destroyed it, it was never the same. Like even the landscape and the fertility of those cities altered significantly. And so Lot, he's checking all this land out and he chooses for himself all the Jordan Valley and he journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Uh-oh, that's a big deal. We'll come back to it a little bit later. I'll tell you why. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So let's hit the pause button and talk. All right, What we see in these verses is prosperity leading to conflict. Prosperity Leading to conflict. Last Sunday, uh, I just mentioned briefly that at times, earthly stuff can cause earthly troubles. Well, here we're seeing the reality of that. We're told in the passage that Abram and Lot, Lot was Abram's nephew. Right at one point, Abram had this brother, Lot's dad. He died, so Lot's hanging out with Abram during this point in his life. We're told that these guys, they had so many possessions between them that the land they were in could not support them living together, dwelling in the same place. You know what I mean? The land was already supporting two other people groups, by the way, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And it seems that they tried to live together for a time, that is, until their herdsmen started fighting with each other. And you can just hear that, can't you? Like, hey, dude, this is our watering hole. Get out of here. Find another place to drink from, you know? This is our grazing land. Take your animals, get out of here, find another place to eat from. Again, prosperity leading to conflict. This is what prosperity does oftentimes. Instead of uniting people, it divides people. And I'm sure that some of you have experienced that own reality in your families, haven't you? I mean, I know I have. Uh, Somebody borrows money, they never pay it back, and things get weird Somebody gets left out of the will, and it creates all kinds of dysfunction, all kinds of issues. Or, or what about this? This is what my family's experienced. That beloved matriarch or patriarch dies, and all the kids start setting their sights on certain possessions that they want that have been left behind, and they start fighting. And all of a sudden, relationships are destroyed over stuff prosperity leading to conflict Abram realizes in this moment if I don't step in and do something that's where this situation is headed and so he steps in takes initiative and he makes a very very generous proposal to lot he says to his nephew hey man look there is no sense in us fighting like this I mean we're family Look, there's all this land in front of us, and so why don't we spread out, give each other a little bit of room so we're not living right on top of each other. And I'll tell you what, buddy, you can pick any plot of land you want. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. I'm just going to leave it entirely up to you. Now, Look, it's really important for us to know today that culturally and positionally, there was no good reason for Abram to do what he did. In fact, it was completely illogical. You see, he was the older man. He was the uncle. He was the elder. He was the leader in the family. And so what should have happened is he calls Lot in and he says to him, listen, kid, I'm not going to put up with your guys disrespecting my guys like they're doing. There's all this land in front of us. And so what you're going to do is pack your stuff up and get out of here and go somewhere else. And, and Hey, I'm so glad you asked, where are you going to go? Well, I've picked the plot of land you're going to live in. Here it is. Hope it works out. Good luck. But what's interesting is that Abram doesn't do anything close to that. Instead, he does the exact opposite of that. Instead of appealing to his position, he very humbly and very graciously lets Lot choose. Why would he do that? Why would he let his nephew pick? I mean, this is like letting your 10-year-old kid pick your family home, you know, it's Just hoping the whole time that he or she makes a wise choice, because if not, it's gonna have major implications for the family for a really long time, right? So why let the nephew pick? Well, the answer is really simple. Because of faith. Because of faith, you see, Abram had a very specific promise from God concerning the land. It first appears in Genesis 12, 7. God basically tells him, Abram, all this land that that I'm giving you, that you're standing in, I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever. And so here's what Abram knew. He knew that he could give away this land a thousand times and it wouldn't matter. Because in the end, God was going to give it all back to him. And because Abram believed that in faith, that God would generously give to him, guess what he was free to do? To practice generosity toward other people. And I just wonder today, is the same true for us? Is the same true for us? Are we those people who, like Abram, are so confident in the character of God and the promises of God related to generosity that we feel this great freedom every day to practice generosity toward other people? listen, I really want to help you answer that question, so let me go New Testament on you for a moment if I can, okay? Uh, Matthew 6.33. Do you actually buy what Jesus is selling there? And if you're going, James, help me, but I have no idea what that says. Uh, Matthew 6.33, Jesus teaches that when you and I seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that God in His grace, God in His generosity will meet every single one of our needs. So, in other words, when we prioritize God's kingdom, God promises to prioritize ours. We give, we contribute, we invest generally to see the kingdom of God expand and advance upon the earth. God says, Hey, I promise you, I will give you everything you need along the way, not everything you want. And that's a very, very important distinction, okay? But God promises to give you everything you need. And so, again, would you look up here? Here's my question Do you actually believe that? And not on an intellectual, theological, philosophical kind of level. Well, of course, James, I believe that. I'm asking, do you believe it on a practical level? In a way where that truth and that promise has affected your life so deeply that you just walk through life with open hands. Who can I give to? How can I be more generous today? Do you believe it? Listen, I think it's really easy to know the answer to that question. All you need to do is simply evaluate your mentality toward everything that belongs to you. You see, I have often found that when people lack faith in the generosity of God, they tend to adopt one of two greedy mentalities. The first mentality is this. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. This is the exact opposite of the mentality we see in Abram, right? I mean, instead of deciding, you know, God promised me this land, And God said, he's giving me this land. And so all this land is my land. And because it's mine, I'm keeping it. Lot's going to have to deal with it and get over it. Instead of that being his attitude, what did he do? He decided in faith to be generous. Now, what's so unfortunate about many people in our world today is that they never arrive at that place. And instead, they live their entire lives thinking to themselves, you know what? My money is my money, and my stuff is my stuff, and my time is my time, and my gifts are my gifts. And so, you know what? At the end of the day, it just blo- I'm just keeping it. I mean, I've spent years building this. I've spent years acquiring this. I've, I've, I've worked hard to earn all this. Don't ask me to give it. Don't ask me to share it. It's mine, and I'm keeping it. Why? Why? Because people who think that way lack faith in the generosity of God. The second greedy mentality is this. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. (laughs) What's yours is mine, I'll take it. This is the attitude or the mentality we see in Lot, isn't it? I mean, we don't know this for sure from the text because the Bible doesn't clearly tell us this. uh, But I tend to believe that Lot probably knew about the promises God made to Abram. I mean, come on, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Are you telling me that if you're Lot, uh, you're going to pack up your life and travel hundreds of miles with your weird uncle who has no idea where he's going if you don't know about the promises God made him? I highly doubt it, right? And so I just imagine in this scenario as Lot and Abram are standing together surveying the land, Lot probably knows in the back of his mind all this is his. God promised To give all this to him. Yet Lot sees a plot of land that he really wants down in the Jordan Valley. It's lush. It's fertile. It's well watered like the Garden of Eden. Like the land of Egypt. And he knows if I'm living down there, life's going to be awesome. It's going to be comfortable. I'm going to be prosperous. And so what does he do? He takes it. He shows absolutely no regard for Abram, his uncle. He simply takes what he wants. And again, unfortunately, many people in our world still do the same today. They see something they want, and they take it. They take it by force. They take it by deception. They take it by taking advantage of people who are easy to take from. And the reason they take is because they lack faith in the generosity of God. Now, back to Lot for a moment. As a result of his taking, he experienced major spiritual consequences that he could not foresee in this moment. Do you remember the place that, that we read about a moment ago where he eventually landed? It starts with an S. It's called Sodom. That's a big deal. We're going to talk more about Sodom later in the series. Uh, we'll talk about its destruction. We'll talk about what Lot and his family experienced while we were there. But what we see in our passage for today is simply this, that, that Sodom was full of great and wicked sinners. And the idea of that phrase is simply this, that the sinners in Sodom were a step below normal sinners. And I know all you like really holy churchy people right now are thinking, well, James, isn't all sin the same in the sight of God? Yes, it is. But come on, be honest. The outcome and consequences of certain sins are way worse than other sins, aren't they? And so again, what the Bible's trying to show us here is that in Sodom, people were doing some really, really bad stuff. And because Lot plunged himself into that place in pursuit of prosperity, we learn from the New Testament, Second Peter 2, 7, that his soul was tormented by the things he saw and heard while he was there. And listen, that, my friends, is the danger, the greatest danger of lacking faith in the generosity of God. You see, when you fail to believe that he's generous and that he gives generously to his people, like Lot, you begin to walk by sight Sight, by the way, is the enemy of faith. We know this from Hebrews 11.1, 1, which tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not, not seen. Uh, faith and sight are opposites. And so when you walk by sight, you start to falsely believe that all these material things you see in the world around you are somehow going to offer you lasting joy and satisfaction. And so greed takes root in your heart. And you begin to chase after all of these things at the expense of trusting God and being generous toward people. And guess what? In the process, you torment your soul. And in many cases, you don't even realize you're doing it. This is why the great theologian John Calvin said this about Lot's decision. Let us learn then by his example that our eyes are not to be trusted, but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them. And be encircled unexpectedly with many evils. Just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Look, if you're taking notes, would you just write this down? Greed kills contentment. Greed kills contentment. Write that down, put it somewhere where you're going to see it every day. Your desk at work, your bathroom mirror, in your car. It's so important that you remember this greed kills contentment as long as you walk through life by sight and you greedily chase after material things and you're believing all the while that these things are going to somehow give you the joy the contentment that you're longing for and looking for look as long as you do that on a spiritual level you will always feel like you're suffering why is that why Well, it all goes back to the big truth I've been trying to beat in your hearts and brains so far over the, what, 12 weeks of this series, and I'll keep beating this into you as much as I can because it's really important. It goes back to this. You and I were created as image bearers, people who are meant to live lives here on the earth to mirror or reflect the very nature and character of God. But if you've ever wondered what the purpose of your life is, it's really simple. God created you in his image to live in such a way so that the world around you would see and know who he is. Well, here's the truth. The only way to reflect the nature and character of that God is by practicing generosity. Why? Because God is a generous God. And the greatest proof of his generosity that we know and see is in who, my friends? Jesus Christ himself. I mean, the scriptures tell us this, that 2,000 years ago, God in his grace gave up the life of his one and only son on our behalf to make us love sons and daughters in his family, heirs of his eternal kingdom. And so know this, contrary to what our culture constantly sells and promotes, it is not the more you get, the more content you'll be. It's the more you give, the more content you'll be. Amen. Abram was a man who exercised faith in that truth and What I love is in response to his faith, God comes and he reaffirms his promises. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent, and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What a beautiful picture. Here's the God of the universe coming yet again to this man who, you know, just previously had suffered some massive failures of faith, had come back, had repented, got him. I just want to set a new course, I need a fresh start. He shows great generosity in faith toward his own nephew. <laughs> and God comes and says, hey, buddy, um, don't ever forget. I'm going to be more generous to you than your little, tiny human brain can ever comprehend. I mean, Abram, in fact, just do this. Just do a little twirl for me. Look, so just, just spin around. Look north and south and east and west. Do you see all this land around you? Abram, I promise you it's going to be yours and your offsprings Forever. And speaking of offspring, you also need to know you're going to have so many that their numbers will be comparable to the dust of the earth. So don't even worry about trying to count them because it's a pointless pursuit. Like it just, it's not going to happen. And Abram, finally, here's what I want you to do. Why don't you just get up and take a little victory tour? Like seriously, just go take a walk throughout the land and claim it all as yours because I promise you, my friend, I'm giving it to you. That's what he does. He just packs his stuff up and He starts moving, and you can just picture him walking throughout the land, taking joy in the promises of God, and he finally makes it to this place called Hebron, where he starts to settle down, and in this place, he builds another altar to the Lord. Why? That he might worship, once again, this God who's been so generous to him. And listen, my friends, that, that is the right response to the great generosity of God because of what He's given us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, we as His people live every moment of every day in worship of Him. And as we close, can I just be really clear on what I mean when I say worship? Because I know some of us, especially those of us who grew up in church, we hear that word and our mind immediately goes to certain practices. But worship at a very foundational level is simply this. It's when you and I express gratitude for and confidence in the character and promises of God, right? Let me just repeat that because I want you to hear it, lock it in, and if you're taking notes, I want you to be able to write it down. Worship at a very foundational level is when you and I express gratitude for and confidence in the character and promises of God. That's why we're here today, isn't it? I mean, through our singing and through our praying and through our Bible reading, what we're literally saying by being in this room is, God, we believe that everything you say about yourself is true. And God, in addition to that, we believe that every promise you've made us will come to pass. But what we have to remember, look, is that worship is more than just lip service, it's a lifestyle. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we don't just speak our faith, we live it out. And one of the ways that we live it out is by doing what our guy Abram did. Because we believe so strongly in faith that our God is a generous God who is generous to us as his people. Every day of our lives, we practice generosity to the world around us because we need people. We know that people need to see our great God for who he is. And so I just thought as we wrapped up our time today, we'd pray together and ask the Spirit of God who lives in us to grow our faith, to increase our confidence and to give us what we need to be the generous people God calls us to be. So can we pray for that together right now? Just heads bowed, eyes closed all across the room. And I just want to invite you to pray over your life right now. Just begin to ask the Lord, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Give me greater confidence in you. Just wherever you're struggling, whether it's with money or time or your gifts or your resources, whatever it is, just just ask the Holy Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, would you touch that area of my life? Help me to let it go, to believe in faith all the promises that God has made me. Help me to prioritize your kingdom. Help me to trust you to meet all my needs. However the Spirit of God leads you right now, just ask God to work in your life. As many of us are praying across the room, I also want to speak to those of you in the room who've never experienced the generosity of God because you have never accepted the most generous gift that God has ever given, His Son, Jesus Christ. And you're probably that person, if that's you, who's walking through life and You're just trying to make things happen and you're looking to all kinds of earthly things for joy and satisfaction. There's probably areas of your life that are very broken that you've been unable to fix and so you're frustrated and you're discouraged. Maybe that's the reason you're here today. And if so, I just want to say to you, God loves you deeply. He's madly in love with you. He created you on purpose for a purpose. And he loves you so much that he gave up the life of his son so that you could be a part of his family. And so today, if you need to experience new life, if you need to experience hope and and you want to live out the purpose God created you to live for, why don't you just say something like this to him in faith? Just tell him, God, I desperately need Jesus to be my Savior. I believe that you've been generous to me. And God, I, I want to accept the gift that you've given on my behalf. I believe that you gave up the life of your son to pay for all my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead three days later to conquer sin, death, and hell for me. And so, God, I'm I'm asking you right now, would you forgive me of all my sins? And, God, I'm saying to you that from this day forward, I want to follow Jesus. God, take hold of my life and make me into the person you've created me to be. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed all across this room. If you just pray that with me or something like it, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor right now in this moment. If you just pray that with me, would you just lift a hand wherever you're seated to let us know you did that? Just lift it up real high. Thank you so much. We see your hands going up already. Just keep it up for a moment. Our prayer team has a resource they want to place in your hand, and as soon as you receive it, you can place your hand back down. Anybody else, James, that's me put my faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord today on the floor, in the balcony, wherever you are. If we haven't gotten to you, just throw it up real high where we can see it. Father, we thank you today for how generous you are, for how generous you've been. Um, God, I, I thank you. God, knowing that in reality, we haven't even tasted the fullness of your generosity. That won't happen until we see you face to face one day. God, help us to long for that day, to remember that this world is temporary. Help us to remember that this place is not our home, that anything that we could choose here over you pales in comparison to your greatness. And God, I pray that you would increase our faith, increase our confidence. Help us to believe in who you are. Help us to believe that all your promises will come to pass. And in light of that, God, grow us in generosity. I pray that through our lives you would put, God, your your giving nature on display. And so, God, we lay our lives before you and we ask you to use us for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. And, God, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.